This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 25th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson on the journalism faculty at the university. And today we have one of the really great writers, and I would even say one of the great humans as part of the uh, symposium. Pico Iyer is one of those amazing writers whose work I've read for years and never dreamed I'd get to meet. His most recent books include The Art of Stillness, Autumn Light, A Beginner's Guide to Japan, and for many years was a travel writer and international correspondent for Time magazine. He's written several accounts of places around the world, collections of stories, commentaries, novels, first-person accounts, and, uh, and long-form narratives. Pico Iyer, it's a pleasure to have you at our Writers' Symposium this year. Thank you, Dean. As far as I'm concerned, the evening is a success already. Let's just stop there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's <laughs> just talk about better. ping pong now for oh, the rest yeah, of the Yeah, why night. don't you say a few more nice things about me? <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I actually have a couple of more nice things. Oh. Now, uh, not a lot, but a, a few more. Um, you've spoken all over the world uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, as well as at Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and now at the symposium. This sort of completes the circle for you, doesn't it? Yes. This is the culmination, actually. Yeah, yeah. So you can just kind of check this off your bucket list. Now you've been to Davos, and now you've been to Point Loma. Yeah, I, I see it. But, but actually, I want to ask you about this, uh, especially uh, some of the places where you have spoken, because corporations bring you in. Other people bring you in. I, I don't characterize you as a motivational speaker, uh, somebody who will tell managers how to get more productivity out of, their, uh, out of their employees. You're a guy who travels around the world, sees things that everyone else sees, but you see them differently. And then you write about things like impermanence and mortality and grief. Why do these places bring you in for these, uh, for these talks? What do you tell them? Well, I'll let you into a secret. I found out I've been living in this little neighborhood in Japan for 32 years. And after a few years, I found out that my nickname in the neighborhood was Isoro, which I was not delighted to find means parasite. <laughs> in other words, really? I, I do nothing for a living as far as they're <laughs> concerned. I wake up, I make a 10-foot commute to my desk. I sit there all day, take a couple of walks, and then sleep. And so those very, very high-energy, fast-forward, and managers and CEOs that you're talking about want to learn how to take a break. And oh, actually, I tell them that, as every corporation knows, you advance by taking a retreat. You do better work by doing less work. You know, J.P. Morgan, 100 years ago, said wonderfully, I could never achieve in 12 months what I achieve in 10. You take two-month holidays every year, and that's what allowed him to bring energy, freshness, and optimism to his corporate environment. So, yeah, I really have nothing to tell the corporate environment other than be quiet, uh, take a walk. And they bring you yes. from, from all over the world. They, they, they have you come in and just say, okay, everybody, let's just be quiet. Because 
I think all of us are overwhelmed, and they are more overwhelmed than anybody, and they know they have much more information coming in than they have time or space to make sense of it. So in some ways, I'm just telling them what instinctively they know already, which is unplug for 20 minutes a day or for 24 hours every week, and then you can do much more justice to the information you have. And you know, having written for a long time, I think when I first began writing in the 1980s, and I would travel to Cuba and Tibet and elsewhere, I really felt that we were achingly in need of information. We didn't know enough about the rest of the world. And so quickly now I think we're suffering from too much information. And so much is coming in on us every day. We don't know how to extract the important parts. And we, in fact, know less and less. And I think in the age of information, we know less about the rest of the world than ever before. And so I, living in this two-room rented apartment in the middle of nowhere without a television or a car or anything, at least have a slightly different life from the mm-hmm. people in Silicon Valley. And Which they find attractive. Yes, or they think if we take one step in this direction, maybe it'll open new doors for us. And if I take one step in their direction, I would probably benefit too. Huh. Well, let's talk about some of the travel writing uh, that you've done. Uh, I mean, that's what you're mostly known for. Uh, and then we'll get into some other, other stuff, too. But you have this wonderful line from uh, the book Video Night in Kathmandu. If every journey makes us wiser about the world, it also returns us to a sort of childhood. Hmm. We look more excitedly with eyes of wonder. And if every trip worth taking is both a tragedy and a comedy... Rich with melodrama and farce, it is also, at its heart, a love story. So is that what travel is for you? Is, is it a love story as you're looking for things to write about? It's an awakening. It's a, about a fascination with the unknown. It's about going into a place you know little about and coming back knowing even less about it, but being happy to be aware of what you don't know. But then you've got to write about it. So how do you do that? You know even less. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I always present myself in my writing, I hope, as a typical blundering tourist. Hmm. Uh, and so I want the reader to be walking with me through the st- streets of Tehran, perhaps, not knowing how to tell a right from left or even right from wrong, but fascinated by this place that we didn't know sufficiently about, even though Iran is on our headlines every day of the year, probably. And... I think since the beginning, most of my writing has been about the dance of dreams, the, the dance of projection sometimes. In other words, the video night book that you mentioned was about how many of us from, let's say, Southern California will travel to the East in search of what's ancient and wise and pristine. And when we arrive in the Nepali village, they're fascinated by Dean or Pico because we come from the world of modernity and, and, and abundance and We, to them, have as much material plenty as they, to us, have spiritual plenty. And so each is projecting his or her dreams upon the other. And this interesting dance unfolds. And I think almost the central image of that book, Video Night in Kathmandu, was when I'd step into a little bar on the back streets of Manila, Tammy Wynette was on the jukebox. There'd often be a quite large Westerner, not so young, with a very, very young um, Filipino woman in his arms. And they're dancing around, and they both feel a real attraction to each other, but neither knows how much she's attracted to him or to the life he represents, and he doesn't know how much he's attracted to her or to his romantic notions of the East. And it is a love affair, but as confounding and sometimes unsettling as 
any love affair that really asks us difficult questions about our motivation and what you said initially, who are we? <laughs> yeah, so I, so I think to continue on this, you've also talked about travel as a type of emancipation. On, on the one hand, it is finding what is this other place about and what am I projecting onto it, what, are the, what am I receiving from it? But you've also described travel as a, as a kind of freedom as well. Well, I become a stranger to myself, I hope, when I travel. And I think... Well, hold it. What does that mean? Yeah, I know. Sorry, I'm speaking in gnomic koans. But um, I think all of us know what we want is not to leave our homes behind, but to leave our habits behind. So I will return tomorrow to my little desk in Japan, and I can tell you to the minute I'm spending 300 minutes at my desk and taking this walk and playing ping pong and coming back. Very routinized life. Being a parasite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Being a full-time yeah. parasite is yeah. not easy. Um, and then suddenly I'm on the streets of North Korea, say, and A, I'm shaken free of my habits. You know, I can wander all day, get lost all day. But also I'm shaken out of my notions of the world. I, when I'm sitting at my desk, I think I know what reality is. I know what human existence is. We all share certain things in common, not in North Korea. Anything I understand by, li- by mm-hmm. life doesn't apply to a country where if you so much as pick up a foreign newspaper, you're executed, you're, you're condemned to death. Uh, and nothing in their life really co- corresponds to mine, which is why travel is so wonderful, because the world is inexhaustible and it's always stranger and richer than our ideas of it. Um, so I like to be taken to places in myself, often unsettling places, uh, that I would never see. I, I spend most of my life in Japan. My mother lives in Santa Barbara. And so these are very comfortable, almost gated communities that are not mm-hmm. so similar to 99% of our neighbors on the global planet. So I'm very grateful to walk the streets, as I know you have done, of Haiti or Tibet or Cambodia, and be reminded that I'm living in a cocoon and in a kind of state of blissful ignorance. Um, and that really is kind of an emancipation from, from, from that gated life that, uh, that I have been living, that you have been living. Yes, it's a, it's a social emancipation, and it's also a kind, kind of spiritual emancipation. I like the fact that when I take a trip, I have this much to carry with me. I usually live my life with too much stuff around me, more than I know what to do with. But suddenly I have to think, what are the four books I want to take? What are the three pieces of clothing I really need to use? And I I like the fact we become monks of a kind when we're traveling. We're living Mm -hmm. in small spaces, out of small containers, and we're reduced to something essential. And I've always, unlike many people, liked the fact that when I speak a language poorly or when I'm speaking English simply to somebody in Mongolia, I'm clarified. I'm simplified. I'm not trying to make fancy sentences or dazzle somebody or, or make plays on words. I'm just trying to get communication or meaning from me over to her and vice versa. So you're saying there's an, authentic, there's an authenticity yes. that you don't experience when you're around your comfortable That's right. And it's easy to needlessly complicate our lives. And actually, as I think of it, in this extract you read, you mentioned the word childhood. Mm -hmm. And it is like a return to that, the clarity and innocence of of childhood. And I know certain traditions talk about beginner's mind, looking Mm -hmm. at the world as if you've never seen it before. And I think that's always a good thing. And it's hard to do when we're caught up in our routines. And we almost need to assume we know everything about how our day is going to go. Just as we were walking over to this theater... 45 minutes ago, you said, let's stop. Look, there's the moon, there's the northern star, there are the palm trees, there's this beautiful sapphire sky. 
It would be easy, especially for you, to say, I've been in Point Loma 35 years, I can see this every day. But you had the sense to say, let's stop and be reminded of this wonder um, that's around us. And for me, it was much easier because I just arrived from Japan. I've never been to Point Loma before. And my eyes are wide open. Hmm. I, I can't allow myself to assume I know Point Loma, which means that every turn it's expanding my, my imagination and horizons. Cool. And I think that's what travel does. And you don't have to go far to do that. I mean, in Southern California, just go to the other side of town often. Uh, mm-hmm. And no, no, this world. is it. There's no other side of town. <laughs> we're, 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 we're here. So, so actually, let me, let me ask you about your evolution as a writer, because I have a theory about you as okay. a writer, um, which I'll see if you're correct to my theory. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's uh, well, let me ask you, just how have you evolved, and, and I'll just frame it this way, it seems like you have gone from writing about places to writing about um, places that are elsewhere to writing about places that are in here. That seems to be the evolution of you as a writer. Would you agree with that? So I have really bad news, which is you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> Love it. So, so I would never say I've, I'm a travel writer, but I am a tra- writer who's interested in our meeting with the unknown, you could say, or even a transport writer. What transforms us? Where do we find transcendence? Those kind of trance states. So exactly so, and very consciously, the first 12 years of my professional writing life, which is my first five years, I wrote very much about the outer world. Mm-hmm. And then the next 12 years of my writing life, uh, my next five books are very much about the inner world. Mm-hmm. And now I'm on the you know, 12th or 13th book, and I'm trying to bring them together and find those places with, where I explore the inner and the outer at the same time. And literally midway through my career, halfway through my sixth book, it moved from the external world to the internal. And it began in Los Angeles Airport, where I had the masochistic idea of spending two weeks living in LAX. And it ended um, with me and my little neighborhood in Japan, where there's none of the melting pots and the comings and goings of LAX, but you're on the spot and you're forced to answer what matters to me. And where are you going in life? And I think it was Krista Tippett who described you as a cartographer of both the outer and the inner world. Would that, so you're, you're saying that this is what you've been doing? That would be my hope. I think even as a little boy, I thought to some extent we have two mandates as human beings, to understand the world and to understand ourselves. And so when I traveled around the world, I thought I was learning quite a lot about Burma and and Tibet and Syria and Bolivia, but not really having much chance to gather myself and look at the shadows in myself. And so I thought now I need to complement it by making sure I'm looking at all the places I'd rather look away from in my being, of which there are plenty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just seems, though, that you were were kind of wired for this whole cross-cultural, constant motion yeah. life that you're living, because you were, you were raised this way, yes. here in Oxford, or here, Santa Barbara, Oxford, uh, elsewhere. Um, you were always headed somewhere, and you've got this great line from the book, uh, The Man Inside My Head. Um, home, I began to feel, was the half-formed beliefs that you fashioned in the middle of all you didn't and couldn't understand, a tent on a wide, empty plain. 
I read that about three times. I just read it again. I, I still don't know what it means. No, I. But, but no, yeah, nice. Nice. But I just think it's beautiful. It's, that's just a beautiful sentence. And you, you don't know what it means? <laughs> well, you're right. I, I, from the age of nine, I was going to school by plane, which in those days was very unusual. Tra- commuting six times a year between my parents' house in Santa Barbara and my boarding schools in England. And so I quickly thought, well, home is a, is a work in progress. Home is, is not where I live. It's what lives inside me. So even when I was in my boarding school, I knew that my home was my mother and father. It wasn't Santa Barbara. It wasn't that school. It was the the things I cherish, the values I want to live by, the Graham Greene novel that's always in my carry-on, the Leonard Cohen song that's always on my head, and that home was much more, had much more to do with a piece of soul than a piece of soil. And I'd always thought that. And then two things happened. One, um, everyone started moving all around the world, and I, who thought I was in a lucky and unusual position growing up as an Indian boy with an English accent and an American green card... I became kind of unicultural by comparison. If you go to a classroom in San Diego, most of the kids have many more cultures inside them and around them than I did. So that's the way the world has turned very quickly. Mm -hmm. But secondly, and I won't go on about this, but I I was saying to some of your students this afternoon, I was in my family house one day in in Santa Barbara, and everybody in San Diego knows about these situations. I saw a distant knife of orange cutting through a hillside, and next thing I knew, I was surrounded by 70-foot flames, and... um, our house and every last thing in it um, was reduced to ash. So that next morning, I had no notes, no books to write, no anything. I only had a toothbrush in the world that I bought from an all-night supermarket. So that that day, the next day after the fire, if somebody said, where is your home, I literally couldn't point to any physical construction. My home would have to be metaphysical or inward, whatever I carried inside me. And so it really enforced that intuition I'd always had, that the notion of home has become something very different from what it was in our grandparents' generation. And to go to that quote you just read, that (laughs) home is a fragile thing. If it's a physical thing, it's likely to be wiped out by the next tsunami, earthquake, or forest fire. If it's something inside you, it can be with you till your dying day. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's talk some about the craft of uh, writing, because you're, you're so good at this. Your writing in particular, you have an eye for detail that uh, I've been to some of the same places you've been, and you just pick up stuff that I just think, dang, why, why didn't I think of that? Why, you know, why, why didn't I see that? So is this a conscious thing? Are you... Are you always on the alert for that strange juxtaposition, that overhearing, that little conversation? What, how do you do this? So I think whenever I arrive in a new place, including in Point Lemma yesterday afternoon, I think this is my chance to meet a fascinating stranger, somebody I've never met before. And just as when you and I meet a fascinating stranger at dinner or in any context... We want to hear her story. Mm -hmm. Who are you? Where did you come from? What's your life? And that's how I am with places. So my first 48 hours in a place, ideally, I just walk and walk and walk around it by myself. With I was going to take out my worn notebook, but there's a microphone on top of it, so I won't. But anyway, with my worn notebook, scribbling everything that I see, and engaged in a conversation with it. I I arrive for the first time tomorrow in Beirut, and I want Beirut to tell me who it is and what it dreams of and what it's most terrified of. So you're not going by memory. You're actually writing this down. Huge amounts. 
And of course, one can't keep on walking forever. So every couple of hours, I'll sit down, um, have a cup of tea, and write everything down that's happened in the last two hours while it's still alive in me. And then when I go back to my hotel room at the end of the day, before I go to sleep, I write it all up again. And the notes I take then are not little fragments. They're fully fleshed, full paragraphs, as if I were sending a blog out to a friend in order to get the feeling of that place. Because I can get the details and the population when I'm back home. But what was the color of the rug under Dean's chair? And how was the blue light from the balcony shining on us? That, that I can never get except this moment. And you know how sometimes you'll have a dream and you'll want to transcribe it. And if you transcribe it without even turning on the lights while your eyes are closed, you'll cover maybe this much. If you wait even 10 minutes, you'll have a sentence. If you wait till the next morning, you can't remember you even had a dream. And I think experience is very evanescent like that, and you have to catch it while you're in the thick of it, while you can hear the cadences and smell the fragrances and, and see how that couple across the room are interacting. Yeah, I, and maybe that's it. I, uh, I, maybe I just don't commit to that kind of end of the day, just writing it all down, getting those, uh, getting those feelings. Um, I think you don't, you don't need to because you're often going for other purposes and you've got a certain assignment you're doing or a mission that you're on, and that's what's taking you there sometimes, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> so, so is it true that you write all the drafts of your books by hand? Yes, it's not, it's not something I recommend to anybody. Growing up in England, I, I never learned to type. So to this day, I don't know how to type. You write it by hand. Yes, and, and write many, many drafts by hand. And then finally, with two fingers, but at high speed, input it into the computer, <laughs> which is also a good process because in the, in the, while I'm inputting it, better type ideas of come to me. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, more ideas come. It's a type of revising. Yes. On the other hand, when a forest fire wipes out your house, you begin to wish you didn't have all your notes handwritten. There, there it is. Irreplaceable. Yeah. Yeah. So you've lost some stuff. I lost three books and I lost probably eight years of writing in that fire. Um, and I, in some, but in some ways, it, again, it liberated me because I think I was too wed to the notion of being a writer as a kid. You know, that was my dream and I'm going to make my name in the world. And, and then it freed me from all that and reminded me that writing is something that helps my spirit and enables me to understand the world maybe better than I would. But that's all it means. It's like a game of ping pong in, in, in the larger scheme of things. Some of the writing advice you've given over the years is uh, get push away from the desk. You spend hours in front of your desk. Yes. But you also say, but get away from the desk. It took me a long time to see that my best writing takes place when I take a walk from my desk, or play ping pong, or go to a movie, or talking to a friend. Uh, and uh, 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 you got to explain that. Yes, I will. <laughs> Daniel Kahneman, the brilliant Nobel Prize winning um, economic behavioral psychologist, pointed out that there are certain kinds of things, like multiplying 26 by 43, that are best done when you're sitting down, and you can only do when you're sitting down. There are other kinds of things, like thinking outside the box, or upending the structure of a piece you're writing, you can only do when you're not distracted by the details, when you can see the wood from the trees. In other words, when you're, and literally when you're in motion, certain things come to you that they never will when you're sitting at my desk. At my desk, I'm surrounded by, as you are, when you're at your desk, by my notes and my outline and my A, B, C, D, and that's indispensable. I couldn't write without it. 
But as soon as I take a walk, I think, let me put D before A. And wait a minute, actually a third of all that stuff I've painstakingly annotated isn't useful at all. And why don't I turn those eight chapters into nine chapters and suddenly the book becomes a lovely triptych with three sections of three chapters each, which I never could see when I'm thinking, should this word go here or should that detail go there? So you wouldn't get the same result if you just stayed at your desk and said, I just got to power through this. No, certainly not with that sense. If I stayed at my desk and closed my eyes, if I stayed at my desk and put my notes on the other side of the room, possibly. But certain people, wiser than I, say that the the fact of ambulation sets something in motion Mm -hmm. in the head, and I sort of believe that empirically. Uh, And then the other good thing about taking a walk is uh, sentences, whole passages start coming to me, and slowly my energy is building up and up and up. You know this, I can see Mm -hmm. from where you're Mm -hmm. nodding. So by the time, as soon as I get back to my desk, I'm roaring to write which is not the case after 263 minutes when I'm sitting there. I'm roaring not to write then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm longing to get away from it. I, I think it was when I interviewed Joyce Carol Oates here, uh, she said she spends the majority of her time writing staring out the window. And she's the most prolific writer of exactly. all time. So Ex- yes. Exactly. Really. So, so maybe that's her equivalent of, uh, of going for a walk. She yes. just kind of disengages and... I think Philip Roth said he walks one mile for every page he writes, or he said that. Really? John le Carre is famous for his long walks, and he's another very prolific writer, yes. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be walking. It could be swimming, playing tennis, whatever. But yeah. putting your mind in a different place and jolting yourself again out of your rigid barriers, I suppose. You're, you're still drawn to uh, the writers Emerson and Thoreau, Yes. Aren't you? Yes. I mean, you, they, you know me better than I do. Thank <laughs> you. For, you really researched this well. Yeah, I, I know what I'm talking about. So, so the, the, but there's a, uh, um, I mean, I remember reading them as a kid and being moved by them, but I don't, re- they, I don't remember going back to that same well over and over, or I don't go back to that same well. What is it about them that makes you keep them alive in your own spirit? So I think, you know, Seamus Heaney wrote this great poem when Nelson Mandela um, was released from prison, and he wrote more or less, there comes a time when hope and history rhyme. And so I think most of my writing is about putting hope and realism into the same sentence. I want to see the world as it really is, but I don't want to give up on a sense of possibility. So I always have these two poles in my head. One is possibility and one is the real world. And I think as a little boy growing up in old world England, which is pretty circumscribed. America is the graced gospel of the future tense, of remaking yourself, a possibility. And Thoreau and Emerson, the great hymnists of, of that notion. And so they taught me to believe in potential, to believe in the optative tense, as Emerson said, to believe that you were not stuck in the people we are. And Graham Greene and Somerset Maugham and John Le Carre, English writers, taught me, you know, this is the world as it is. And so to this day, if I pick up tomorrow, as I probably will, a passage by Thoreau, it opens something up in my spirit and reminds me I'm not fixed. The world can be better than it is. Um, I can sit in this two-room apartment and see more than if I traveled across the Milky Way, which Hmm. is Thoreau's great understanding, and Emily Dickinson likewise. Um, so, So for somebody who grew up in a realist culture, they taught me possibility. And then having spent a lot of time in California, I th- thought now I need a dose of realism. And so I traveled to, <laughs> traveled to 
you know, I don't want to be an endless summer. I want to learn about autumn, and I want to learn about the fact that things last, don't last. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I moved to Buddhist Japan, where they have this wonderful phrase that life is about a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. And so I think, you know, I went to Japan the way you might go to an 80-year-old gentleman who's thought a lot about and experienced sorrows, loss, death, and yet still has a brightness in his eye. And I thought, well, I want to see what happens after innocence and after that fresh sense of possibility that many of us discover when we're young. But it's true that I do find Emerson and Thoreau, especially Thoreau nowadays, inexhaustible. And I've probably gone back to that well more than to any well in my life. And sort of Thoreau is the explanation of why I live in a simple way in Japan. You know, this explanation, this is helping me because I, there was a, a question I, I was just going to ask you almost as if someone would ask a therapist. So here we go. <laughs> uh, I, I just want you to help me understand something. Why, when I went to Tibet, I felt like, okay, this, I understand something about the world and I understand something about life. Being in Tibet that I'd never come to any of those kind of thinking or feelings. But then when I go to Haiti, I feel the same way. Mm. I understand something Mm. about the world, and I understand something about humanity when I'm in Haiti. Mm. Those are two completely different experiences, but why do you think that's a clarifying, those are both such clarifying places? Because I'm guessing you've had similar kinds of experiences. Yes, and I think the first part of it is what I was saying earlier. You or I go to Haiti, and it's a wake-up call. This is reality yes. for the majority of the people on the planet. But it's not dispiriting. And I think the startling, almost paradoxical thing that people come back from Haiti or Calcutta or even parts of Lhasa with is the conditions are terrible, terrible but I wasn't depressed. I wasn't dispirited. There's an energy there, there's a vibrancy and a resourcefulness and resilience that makes me not think that these people are doomed, and they certainly don't think they're doomed, even though the economy is always collapsing, the governments are changing every season, and yet I come away from Haiti invigorated. And I tell my friends who go to India, it's very shocking, but it's not distressing, and it's not a despairing place. And it goes, uh, as you mentioned, Tibet, and as you know, I spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. And for so much... Hold hold, hold it. Can I I just stop there for a second? (laughs) You just said, as you know, I spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. You just sort of dropped that in there, didn't you? (laughs) No, because I I wrote a book about him, so I spent time with him. But he he is, conversely, has spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, fundraisers and the like. And usually when he's at some glittery Beverly Hills event, um, he'll look across at this audience and somebody will almost invariably say, what is it it like to live in India, this place of unimaginable poverty? And he'll look at an audience where many people are on their fifth or sixth marriage. Many of them are going every day to therapy, speaking of Mm -hmm. therapy. Mm -hmm. And he'll say, well, there's poverty and there's poverty. And, you know, India has certain resources, inward, spiritual, in terms of family and community, that many of us here in privileged California would be grateful for. And, you know, poverty isn't just about material abundance or its death, um, but many other things as well. Yeah. Just the fact that you've brought up Leonard Cohen and the Dalai Lama. uh, Because you hang out, you hung out with... Leonard. But I don't think I brought him up, did I? 
No, well, no, you, 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 you recited a line from one of his songs, and I knew what you were after. You were saying, ask me about Leonard Cohen. So, oh, I don't even remember the line. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. It, it, it was there. But you, you even wrote liner notes to one of his albums, didn't you? Uh, it's, it's quite a few of his albums. Oh, uh, there it is. <laughs> uh, um, all that, what I will say, I first got to know Leonard Cohen when he was 61, and he was living for five and a half years as an ordained Zen monk at Mount Baldy, just you know, uh, two hours to the north. And I think what really struck me as a young man in my 30s was here is a man who has everything you could imagine, who could be doing anything anywhere in the world with any company he wants, and he's chosen to give himself to this back-breaking discipline. So he was literally, in his 60s, shoveling snow, scrubbing floors, tending to the aged... Um, Zen leader of this community uh, and looking after the ragged community around him. Uh, and it speaks to just what, um, what we were saying about poverty. He does have a line. I don't think I've quoted him yet, but I could say, he, he, in one of his songs he says, I've always hungered so much for nothing to touch. And I think he always had this very ascetic quality. People think about Leonard Cohen as the lover and the man of the world, which he is in, the, in a beautiful Armani suit. But his deepest longing was for simplicity and for not freedom from distraction. Hmm. Uh, and so he found that in the monastery. And he came and memorably said to me the first day I met him, this is the real luxury in life. This is the voluptuous pleasure in life. And at age 61, he tasted everything that sex and drugs and rock and roll could offer. And he was finding more sustenance from this seemingly simple life in a kind of 13th century landscape um, than from anything else. And so that made a big impression on me um, in the first half of my life. What, what, what ultimately nourishes us? Yeah. I, I, I want to give you a couple of sentences that... Just, I just thought were so beautiful that you've, that you've written, and then I've got a question about them. So you've, you've got this line from, um, you mentioned uh, drugs and, and uh, well, this brings up religion. So you've got this line from Video Night in Kathmandu where you say, religion and drugs had been the country's two great cash crops for so long now that nobody really seemed to care which one was sedative and which one was stimulant. I underlined that, and I thought, okay, did you did that just pop out of your head, or did you really work on that one? That's a beautiful sentence. Oh, thank you. God, I, I was 28 when I wrote it. But, oh, what a but, show off. <laughs> so, but I was, it, it, it did pop into my head. Did it really? I mean, you're going to give me a hard time for saying this too, but I, I wrote that book on leave of absence from my job, so I had to write that book in three months. So I didn't have time to linger or wait for the perfect sentence. I had to write it high, high speed. That's impressive. But here's, here's another one of my favorites. This is uh, a description from, um, about Yemen in your book, Sun After Dark. The city is stretched out along the coast like a piece of gum that someone has been chewing for a very long time. Oh. That's good. Well, it, it goes back to stimulants and sedatives, actually, because <laughs> any, anyone who's been to Yemen knows they spend all their time chewing something called chat, which mm-hmm. is like chewing tobacco, but a lot more potent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're in some altered state there, um, probably sim- stimulant and sedative. Well, th- th- those are, but those sentences, I, I just found them so arresting when I, uh, when I read them because I thought, oh, there's, th- th- there's such craft in there. To, well, I mean, to speak at a deeper level to your question... No sentence, no sentence one enjoys can come from thinking. 
So there's no way I could sit down and now I'm going to come up with an interesting metaphor for, um, for Yemen or now I'm going to bring drugs and religion into the same sentence unexpectedly. They only can come if you've opened yourself up to the subconscious that something wiser than you passes through you and comes out. And I think every writer you've ever spoken to on the stage probably says, I'm not writing a book, the book's writing me. And ideally, and you know as a long-time writer who's published so much yourself, that you your hope is to get into that state, basketball players say it's getting in the zone, where you're just transcribing, you're taking dictation, and, and, and you feel like you're a vessel for something much deeper than yourself. And then you're surprised when you read the sentences. I was surprised to hear that sentence about religion and drugs, that that, that came out of me all those many years ago, but it didn't come out of me. It's sort of, you know, Heming would say, you lay the table so the muse comes and just scribbles across it, and then you claim those sentences as your own. Do you think uh, Annie Dillard's line about writing a book, is that how you see it? Being like a dying patient, is that the yes. line? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The line is, I do not so much write a book, this goes to what you were saying, I do not so much write a book as sit up with it, as with a dying friend. Huh. That's, that just sounds so sad. So is, is that how you write your books? You know, it goes back to Haiti. And I remember there was a book published about Haiti, which is called something like The Happiest Nightmare on Earth. Hmm. And now I think of it, that's a perfect description of writing. You know that most of the time at the desk is misery, and yet the whole endeavor is, is joyful. And, and I would not surrender it for anything else in the world. And anyone who's given herself to a craft, whether she's playing a piano or raising kids or, or teaching in a school would probably offer the same description of her passion, that so much of the time is really heartache and disappointment and and frustration, but that doesn't begin to diminish the real exaltation that you feel in every moment of it, and certainly at the end of it. Yeah, it is a a weird contradiction that it's it's so hard, but it's so... um, uh, You just have to. Yes, and if, if, if writing were to take Annie's metaphor, if it were a matter of my just giving you a pill, I'm not going to get any satisfaction out of that. Um, the satisfaction comes with grappling with something much larger than yourself uh, and not ever feeling you come to, to terms with it or n- that you're on top of it, but that you're a little different from where you began. So to that point, here's a line from your book, uh, Autumn Light, which I found just stunning. It was, it the was book so, or the, the line? The book, the book. Oh, uh, thank uh, you. Uh, <laughs> but here's, here's a line that, again, I just uh, wanted to capture. Words have little value in the kingdom of essential things. They're just decorations on the feelings too deep for us to put into syllables. What you've just said there is you can't ever write what you're thinking or feeling. That's what it sounds like you just said. Yes. It's beyond words. Yes. yes. So then why write? A finger pointing at the moon, they would say in Japan. It's a gesture towards it. It's, for example, I will show you maybe later this evening a postcard of Ladakh so that you will go and experience the real reality. Or I will tell my friends about Jerusalem so that they will be moved and to have an experience much richer than anything in my account could, could offer them. Um, thank you for, for singling out those words. It's true that as a writer, spending I've now spent um, 37 years doing nothing, <laughs> being a parasite sitting at my desk with my words. Of course, I learn a lot about the limitation of words, but I've always felt, or I've felt for a long time, the most important things in life, by definition, are not just beyond our words, but beyond our explanations. 
things that bring us to our knees in every sense, to use Leonard Cohen's phrase, when we fall in love, when we um, encounter a moment of faith, when we're shocked or terrified. There are no explanations we can put to those moments and not really the right words. I can't describe the fear I feel if an adder starts slithering across this stage or that the breathlessness I felt when you know, falling in love with a person who's my wife. I, I can't do justice to it. But it's something yet, I want to commemorate. Yet I try to because I want to commemorate that moment. And I, I did write a book about the year that I first met my wife. And now, 31 years on, I'm so glad that um, it's like a photo album. It's a record of what we said and what happened, which otherwise I would never remember. And I was thinking this morning that writing is a way both to commemorate for as long as I can my happy moments in life and to plunge deeply into the most difficult aspects of life, not with a view to a resolution, but at least with, to avoid just turning away and pre- pretending they don't exist. Yeah, there, there's value in at least trying to articulate whatever it is that you're going through. Yes. Uh, but I don't know, why is that valuable? Because you can't articulate it. it. It's still the finger pointing at the moon. It's, it's, it's just, it's not the moon. Yes, but... Uh, if you, when you went to Tibet, I, I think you mm-hmm. wrote about it, and the fact of trying to write about it took you much deeper than the journey itself. It forced you to think about, what did I, Dean, take away from this? What do I want to share with my friends back in Point Loma about it? What was there in Tibet that I didn't see anywhere else? The practice of writing was a discipline forcing you to speak back to the experience and, and really engage with it and ask hard questions of it that you might not otherwise do. And... And it makes the experience, therefore, much, much richer than, than it would have been otherwise. And so Tibet is living in you more because you, um, you wrote about it, uh, and you, you got more from your encounter with Tibet. Well, I, I don't think there's any question about it. And so that, that's, that's what I love about the way you are able to articulate things, um, because I, I just know it's so frustrating to try to describe how amazing Tibet might be or Haiti might be or something like that. Um, and you know you're not going to do it justice. Mm. But here I am at my desk, slugging away, yes, trying to. Exactly. And that's why I tell all my friends and especially younger people that I meet, please write. It doesn't matter what happens to the writing. And I often think publication is the sales tax we have to pay for the adventure of being at the desk. I mean, all the fun... Oh, that's awesome. That's just a... That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know it as a writer. It's true, but it's... Many times published writer. The fun comes of going into the unknown and flying into places you never knew you had inside yourself at the desk. And then when the book comes out... It's never going to sell a million copies. It's not going to change everybody's life, nor, nor should it. But even if you're writing just to send an email to your friends or to tell your life story to your kids so that they know who you were when you're no longer around, whatever, how, if the writing reaches two people, you have gained in the process of writing mm-hmm. and they will have too. So don't think about the uh, official aspects of writing in the world, and you will be disappointed by most of those, but do think about the way it makes you a richer and more alive and attentive person, and is one of the better gifts that you can share with your friends. I, have, um, I know people who take beautiful photographs, and they give me a photograph, and it makes my week, mm-hmm. and the hope is that a piece of writing would do the same. Um, you know, the first book of yours that I, that I read was The Lady and the Monk, and um, as I'm reading this, this, this goes back to something you were saying just a few minutes ago. As I'm reading this, it's dawning on me, you two are falling in love. Mm. You never actually say this, mm. 
But through this account, through her, what she's doing, what, what you're doing, and how you keep seeking each other out in these different aspects of your life, I'm just thinking to myself, these, these guys are falling in love. And, and it was this whole book where you could have just said in a sentence or two, I met this woman and we fell in love, but you told this story and you made me come to that conclusion which was a much more beautiful experience. Oh, thank you. And that, but that's what writing does, right? It yes. just pulls you in. Yes. And then I lost all my physical photographs in that fire, but that book endures, and that's, that's a better record of the first year my wife knew each other than any collection of photographs or video could, could ever be. And I'll, I, read that, I wrote that book, as I said, 31 years ago, so much of it makes me cringe, and I'm really embarrassed at the person who comes across on the page and the person who wrote it. But I'm so grateful now that it's, as you said, I think the record of my discovery of a person, a city, and a lifestyle that I hope will be mine forever. And I'm so glad I can now go back and say, oh, you know, that's, that's, this is when all these doors open for me. Yeah. And I wouldn't really know that if I didn't have it on the page. And it doesn't, again, have to be the printed page. But um, if I'd kept it in a, in a journal as long as I went, kept, preserved the journal and went back to see it, Mission accomplished. Yeah. She said something really funny about your book, uh, Autumn Light. <laughs> you want to tell us what she said? <laughs> yeah. If my wife were here, she'd be burying her head in her, ha- in her hands. Not just because I'm a continent, a lifelong parasite, but she would say, oh, the trouble with this guy is he likes in-action movies. His idea of a great time at the cinema is a drop of rain trickles down... <laughs> There's a sound of a bird in the distance. My dinner with Andre. That's your kind of movie. Oh, right? too much, too much action for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. two guys talking across. Be, the a table. snow begins. Yeah, a snowflake yeah. begins to melt. Yeah, she's all for. And she actually told me one great thing once. I, yeah, she, like, she has the blessing of never having read anything I've written because her English isn't up to it. But she, she wants to. Oh, your books are just unbearably boring. So I said to her, what, what's a good book? And she had just read a book by Dean Koontz, who lives just up the coast. And she said, first scene, open the back of a car, dead body. <laughs> Second scene, open the back of the car, the body's gone. Who's going to stop reading? And she's right. So, so, <laughs> so she said, but she said this about Autumn Light. Your book, nothing happens. Yes. <laughs> and then I, I agree. <laughs> uh, and I must say that autumn, there's a great Japanese filmmaker in the 1950s called Ozu who wrote, made long films about nothing happening and um, this book was partly a tribute to him and that's because in an Ozu film nearly always the camera's at tatami level it never moves and it's just a couple of people sitting around a table and it's a, usually a father and he's sitting here and somebody says, oh, your daughter can't get married. And he says, oh, really? And then a neighbor comes in and says, hi. And he says, hi. And then the train goes past. And this goes on for two and a quarter hours. <laughs> so to the innocent viewer, nothing happening for two and a quarter hours. But as you get into his special, attentive, nuanced rhythm, you realize that the fact that the father said, oh, shows how clueless he is and that his daughter is going to squander her life looking after a father who doesn't realize that she needs to be married off. And the neighbor looking in, saying hi, is reminding him, hey, get with the program. You're taking up all your daughter's attention, and she's 33, and she needs to make a life of her own. And the train whooshing past is taking his son off to a life in a big city where you'll never see him again. So everything is in there. But as you said, it's not stated explicitly. Because I think, and I think it's almost as if, so in this book, 
I was describing 32 years uh, of my life in Japan, and I really worked hard for 16 years to take out all the drama, to take out everything eventful. And because those are almost like the skyscrapers of our existence, but behind the skyscrapers, even in San Diego, there's a, a quiet river going past, and that's really what our life is. And it's too easy to be... Um, to be affected by the major events. For example, I mentioned a forest fire. That took three hours. That was 29 years ago. So really, the story is in 29 years of how do you deal with a change in your life rather than the three hours that happen to be dramatic. Or when you lose a loved one, you know that she becomes present to you in her absence, maybe in a way she never was. If, if your mother dies, suddenly she's living inside you. She's all around you. Where when she was alive, you weren't visiting your mother long enough. Yeah. And so this book was about how absence can possess us more than presence, and silence, as you suggested, can say much more than words. So that doesn't mean my wife is in a hurry to read it, even if it's translated into Japanese, but uh, it is an, in an action book. So you've written nonfiction accounts, you've written novels. Uh, uh, Cuba and the Night was your first novel, is that right? Yeah, it should have been my last, too. Well, well okay, but, but I want... I want to ask about that. Why fiction? You're so good at nonfiction. Yeah, well, and very practical question. Um, I had, <laughs> uh, really, because my first book, as I was saying, was Dance of Dreams, uh, about cultures mm-hmm. fascinated by each other. My second book is about my coming to Japan, meeting a Japanese woman who'd always dreamed of coming to America. And so my third book was going to complete this trilogy because it was about my meeting a young man in Cuba whose dream was always to come to the U.S. and then partly through me but mostly through his own resourcefulness he got to America and he ended up in New York and Miami and I was fascinated how America would seem to somebody who'd been living 90 miles away but had been fantasizing or dreaming about it all his life. So I spent uh, many years with this person. I kept 800 pages of notes and I had this whole book I was ready to from our meeting my first morning in Havana to when I visited him in a rather derelict hotel in Miami and then in a broken down neighborhood in New York City. All of that book was wiped out by the fire. So I was completely possessed by Cuba at that time, but I couldn't write a nonfiction book because all my notes were gone. Um, but so I thought I'm going to have to come at it at a different angle and make up characters and, and a plot and things that I never saw as a way to get at my obsession because it's not going to let me go. And it's another way that as I say, even that fire liberated me because I think I would have been too shy as a nonfiction writer ever to try novel a novel. But Possessed by Cuba without any notes, I thought, well, now I have to jump off the cliff into this form I don't know enough about. And so I'm grateful to, for being stripped of my notes because that forced me to take a chance. So would you consider writing another novel? You've written a couple. I've, I've written a couple. Um, if, if my wife were here again, she'd say, please tell him never to write a novel again because he's a nonfiction writer, as Dean pointed out. Um, that wasn't a criticism. It was just no. something you're so good at. Yeah. I just wondered, why not stay in that lane? Well, exactly. It's, it's, it's a very good question. And it speaks to the fact that you know this, that a, dry, a writer has divided loyalties. On the one hand, you want to share something with an audience. On the other, you want to work something out for yourself. Sure. So left to my own devices, selfishly, I'd love um, to write another novel. Because for me, I've written quite a lot of nonfiction, so it's like um, walking around the block. 
Mm-hmm. Writing a novel is like driving in the dark with the headlights out into the desert, and you mm-hmm. don't know what's going to spring out at you. But you do know that everything that springs out at you is coming from you. But this is a very psychologically unnerving experience. So it's much more fascinating for me. Hmm. It would be much less fascinating for any reader. So I have to measure my <laughs> obligations to the reader. You know, I'm interested in doing what I can't do. But does a reader? with limited time and many better books to read, really want to see a writer trying to do what he doesn't know what, how to do. Fair enough. You've also said that journalism was a great training for the kind of writing that you do great now. Training. How, how is, why is that good training? Well, uh, and I was telling your students this this afternoon, I was in graduate school previously, so I assumed every piece of writing was aimed at an audience of two professor and myself, and often one, because I wasn't confident the professor would read it. So all I was trying to do was impress and entertain myself. Um, And when I arrived at Time magazine and I would be writing about the week's explosion in Beirut, I was reminded that none of the readers, the magazine's 30 million readers at that time, have any interest in Pico Ayer's prostyle. They want to learn what happened, what were the implications, and what's going to happen next. And so it was a great uh, training in Remembering that communication is the first mandate of writing. Self-expression is a wonderful thing, but the first thing is to make sure you're not leaving the reader behind. The second thing is to be concise, again, in deference to the fact the reader has limited time and she doesn't need to follow you through a thousand pages of your ramblings. And the third thing, lesson was in concreteness. She doesn't necessarily want to know all your ideas about the state of the universe, but it might be interesting for her to read about your car ride through the mountains of Yemen in the dead of night and what that tells her about Yemen, a country we, again, are in the news every day, but most of us don't know so much about. Mm-hmm. So put, put this statement of yours in a context of writing. And I can't remember where you wrote this, but I wrote it down. You're only as strong as your readiness to surrender. Put that in a context of writing. Is, is writing an act of surrender, in your opinion? It's, it's about finding that perfect balance of control and surrender. So it's like being in a relationship, really, uh, which you are. I think of writing almost as another presence, and I have to get to know its habits and my habits as I get to know my wife's habits. So an act of surrender in the same sense I was saying earlier, it's about working and working and working to get to the place where suddenly something comes through you that you didn't know you had inside you or might not have inside you. It's the way that Michael Jordan will practice jump shots an hour a day for 20 years so that in the final minutes of a game he can make a pass behind his back or something. In other words, something other than the jump shot. Mm. So it's a surrender to, to the imagination or the subconscious or the wisdom in the air around you. But it's also, I think I was trying to say there that We all know on a human level, but I think also when we're interacting with writers, their strength is in direct proportion to their readiness to admit weakness. And so a writer who knows it all, he's on top of things, he's never going to be affected by anything that happens to him, he can take us on an entertaining ride. There's some wonderful books written in that spirit. But the ones who really get into us are the ones you can feel that they're trembling and that they're, they're left speechless by experience and they don't know what to do um, with what comes around the corner. I just, a few days ago, re- was reading Elizabeth Strout's um, new book, Olive Again, and she's one of those people who just re- renders me speechless. Mm-hmm. It's her sense of wisdom, the way that life takes us by surprise, the fact that all of us go through 
cataclysm after cataclysm, but aren't defeated by it, and in fact may not be dispirited by it. I'm floored by a kind of wisdom like that. Hmm. So, um, so I like a writer like that for having the courage to show us her, herself and her characters um, when they're broken before the world. Sure. Now, you've given us some great advice already tonight about writing, but we've got some people who are here. They're aspiring writers. They're aspiring journalists. Have you got a, a word of uh, advice or encouragement for them? Well, the word would be focus. <laughs> be as precise as possible. And again, I was sharing this with some of your students this afternoon. Find that part of your background, experiences, and passions that opens a door that's closed to most of us. So when you and I and six of our friends walk across the Point Loma campus tonight, each one of us is going to see something different on the basis of where we grew up, who we are, what our interests are. And that is our voice. And when you and I go to the Great Wall of China and write about it, our challenge is to find that place inside ourselves that's going to say something about the Great Wall of China that no one among the hundreds of millions of people who've been there over many centuries have said before. So it's a very difficult thing, but it's never an impossible thing to find out what is unique in Dean's perspective or Pico's perspective or whatever. Uh, and so especially now when, let's say, you're interested in Syria, there are so many ways of accessing Syria on YouTube and the Discovery Channel and myriad other places. What are you as a visitor to Syria going to be able to bring back that none of those more flashy media can catch and that no very accomplished writer, many of whom have written about Syria, is going to be able to pinpoint? And it's something, but you have to go through many drafts. And again, it involves a kind of rigorous scrutiny of yourself. Which of my um, perceptions are secondhand or cliched or boring? And is there anything I have to say that might surprise other people and even surprise myself? Yeah, I, one of the things that I learned in journalism school was even if something's been told before mm. about a place or about an event, you haven't told it yet. Yes. And that's, there's a little arrogance Per, perhaps that goes along with that, but it goes to what you're saying. There's, you're going to bring your own set of variables to this, and that's what you want to explore and exploit, right? Every encounter is unique, and every conversation is unique. You've been on the stage for 25 years, and I've done these kind of conversations before, but never like this, and right. couldn't be like this. And so, yes, exactly. And you, when you read my books, you're seeing things that most people wouldn't because of who you are and what your experiences have been. Sure. So, yes, absolutely. So let me close this way. The Dalai Lama wrote an inscription to you as a little boy in a book he signed for your father. And this is what he wrote. To Pico and to those of his generation for whom there will be no curtain. Pico Iyer, thank you for pulling back the curtain for us tonight. Thank you, Dean, for such really thoughtful and honest and illuminating questions. I, I sometimes have to interview people, and I know that's a really difficult seat to be sitting in, so thank you for sitting in it for 25 years now. You, you made it easy. Thank you, Pico. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.